All right, well, hello, and we are on lesson nine of Ephesians in the uh, month of lunches. We're going through the entire book of Ephesians in the month of February of 2024, if you want to know a timestamp. But regardless of when you're watching, just, just realize that the Word of God is powerful and effective and, and passes all time and space. So I could be talking here in February of 2024, and you could be watching this in July, drinking some nice sun tea out on the deck and enjoying the sunshine. Uh, regardless of where we're at, we are part of the body of Christ and we can enjoy this together. Um, so we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, now we were we ended last time actually talking and, and praying. Jesus was praying for the disciples and for us before he went to the cross. And, it, and just talking about how much he wanted to bring love and unity. And that the world knows that we are God's disciples because of the love for we have for each other. I think of that old song, we are one in the spirit. We are, and, it, and the one last part of it is, and they'll know we're his people by, a, by a, or his children by our love, by our love. They'll know we are Christians. Sorry, I had to, had to go back and access an old memory there. They'll know we are Christians by our love. But that really, a better way of putting it, and a biblical way of putting it, is by our love for each other. In other words, we become a body that's so unified that it makes no sense to the world. It, there has to be something out of this world that came in and changed them the way they did. And they see the effect of Jesus and the effect of the cross on our lives when they see our unity and love for each other. All right, so picking up in chapter 2, verse 20, says, Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. And we hear songs like Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong, all that. The cornerstone was, is, is the most important stone in any building. Every other stone had to be in alignment with the cornerstone. Uh, that is the only way you could have structural integrity. We are God's building built on Jesus and the word of God. And Christians must be in alignment with Christ. We have to be lined up with the cornerstone. Each of us must be properly positioned. The Bible says that no, you can lay no other foundation except Jesus. But then it said on that we build with gold, silver, and precious stones. What does that mean? We build with stuff that will stand fire in the test of times. We build with the treasures he's given us. We don't come with our own silver, gold, and precious stones and put them on there. Our own efforts are wood, hay, and stubble. And then when he comes in with his furnace, it'll just burn away. But when we use what he's given us, it brings him glory and can be part of his building. It's really important we understand that even good stuff may not be God stuff for us. Uh, I knew, I talked to a pastor one time who did not wear jewelry. He didn't have a wedding ring on, but he was a got, very godly man. But he didn't care if anybody else wore jewelry or had a wedding ring. And I was talking about it, he goes, I have no idea why. God just told me not to wear jewelry. And so he said, maybe if I wouldn't listen to him, I'd been the biggest jewelry thief in Charleston, South Carolina. I don't know. But God told me to, and I, I just listened to him. And I'm thinking, wow. It wasn't a sin to anybody else, but God told him not to. Imagine us having that heart mindset of a servant where we see us as stewards over what God's given us. And if he says something's off limits, even if there is nothing morally, ethically wrong with it, we still honor God 
by doing what he says. And if he says, it's like the Holy Spirit's like an umpire in our heart telling us what's out and what's safe. And following that, it really leads to maturity and growth, but it also leads to stability and for us to be able to build our life upon it and build a life upon his truth. And others see that stability and want to join God's family too, especially in this crazy world we're living in right now. So verse 21 says, we are carefully joined together. Remember that cornerstone. We are carefully joined together, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Regardless, this shows how, regardless of how big this house gets, we're a unique piece, a unique part used for an important, unique purpose. Nothing is unimportant if it's from God to us and we go out and do it. We know we read we, from last, our last time together that doing that brings him glory, it gives him glory. That's why it says in Romans 12, uh, to, uh, 12, 1 and 2, it says we are his workmanship created for good works in Christ. He's, uh, sorry, that's Ephesians 2. But then it says in, in Romans 12, he's called us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, which is a reasonable act of worship. Offering our lives as a sacrifice to God like saying, you're the Lord, and I'll follow you forever on, the, on this earth so I can live with you forever here. You call the shots. And that is bringing worship. That means that you could be at home doing something you hate, like washing dishes, and feel the glory of God all over you because you're doing what He's told you to do in that season and that time of your life, and you just feel God over it. I'm saying that because it's happened to me. I hate doing dishes, especially by hand. And I remember the first time that happened, this was back in the 90s, and I was listening to a, a cassette tape. It was Brownsville Revival. And it was worship from there, and Lyndall Cooley was the worship leader. And I'm hearing these songs, and I'm sitting there, and I'm washing dishes, and I went to the enemy's camp, took back what he stole from me, and I'm sitting there bawling. This is the year of the favor of the Lord, and, and all this, and I'm, our God's an awesome God. And inside of me, I just felt the presence of God all over the place. And I'm washing dishes, my dishes and my roommate's dishes. And I just feel God's presence because I'm just where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing the work uh, outside the world work, but I'm worshiping God and I'm connecting with God right there. So uh says that, you know, we're a unique part and a unique piece, but whatever we're doing, we can always be building on that with uh, what he gives us. And then it shows that in verse 21, each of us carefully joined in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. A holy temple. He uses this terminology. And remember, this is in Ephesus where they had a giant temple to the goddess Diana. Uh, that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this was a place where sex was worshipped orgies happened. It was just an awful place. It was a moral place. Well, we become a holy temple. Uh, and it says in verse 22, through him, you Gentiles also being made part of this dwelling. This temple isn't just a temple where acts are, are committed. This is a temple where the presence of someone much greater than ourselves actually dwells. They would go and commit those acts of, of vileness but it was, uh, sorry, just a second, technical difficulties. There we go. 
Anyway, uh, as we were saying, they would go and do those vile acts. And it wasn't, there wasn't, it didn't bring Diana there. There wasn't, and they didn't, it wasn't like this deity was actually in there, dwelling in there. They were just using an excuse to, to do this stuff. And it was demonized. It really was. Diana was just a demon that uh, tried to get them to do things that would pull them away from God's presence. And so this is opposite of that. This is a temple, a building that's built just for his presence. It's made holy. It's set apart for the purpose of his presence to dwell there. And so um, it says, being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So this is not the impersonal shrine or building. It's where God himself dwells. He is in and among his family. And we, uh, we know that the same cross that gets us to heaven and leads us to, it leads us to something new on earth, which is a brand new church, a new race, God's building, his unique masterpiece, each unique individual stone bringing something different to the table that looks marvelous and beautiful to the world and is attractive to the world, even though the world feels like they're in enmity, they know there's something different and cannot deny the fact that this church is so unified and so full of disciples' love for each other that it's attractive to the world and the world realizes that they need Jesus. And then they have a truth to deny or accept, but at least we get to present that truth and give glory to God. So the same cross that leads us to heaven builds the earth and, and we get to display the glory and the presence of God that dwells in us. Uh, and that's the end of chapter 3. But boy, it's just, uh, sorry, chapter 2. It is just uh, amazing to think about where we've gone so far and all that God's doing for us. And as we go into chapter 3, Paul's going to start talking again and just reiterating who we are and who the church is, who the Gentiles were. And then he's going to go into another uh, of his prison prayers. And it's even, in my opinion, more impactful to me than the first one in chapter 1. So let's look here in Ephesians 2. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the benefit of you Gentiles. Now he's saying he's a prisoner for the benefit. What does that mean? Well, if you read in the book of Acts, He's a, a minister of, a, of the gospel to the Gentiles. Yes, he interacts with Jews and, 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 and talks to them and will lead them to the Lord even. But his main focus is the Gentiles, just as Peter's main focus was the Jews. And so as he's outreaching to Gentiles, the Jews still see Gentiles as vile. They still call them dogs. They still, are, they still think they're nasty and have no interaction with them. Well, there's a famine in the land and there's a lot of uh, Jews that are suffering Paul takes a collection from these Gentile churches to go give to the people suffering in Jerusalem as an act of solidarity and unity, showing, hey, they're not just trying to do something separate. They're trying to be part of this unified body of Christ. And so when he comes in to do that, he also um, ends up going to worship at the temple area. And they mistakenly think that the uh, Gentiles he brought with him, he brought into a temple area, which is a big no-no. Matter of fact, there's a gate, and if you and there's a sign that says basically, if you cross this gate, what happens next is 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 on you. In other words, you die. It's on your it's on your own head. So the Gentiles weren't allowed to cross that gate, and so he was out past that gate 
and they thought that he had brought Gentiles, which he didn't. And so they, they basically created a mob and rioted, and it got to a violent point, and the Romans were there kind of protecting Paul, and Paul started giving his side of the story, and they listened to this whole testimony up until he said that he preached to the Gentiles, and then they're like, he deserves to die! This is how much there was enmity there. And he would got put in prison, and he had to appeal to Caesar because the Jews were going to kill him. And so he's in a Roman, he's in a Roman uh, house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier because he preached to the Gentiles. And why does he say, that's why he says for their benefit though, is because they got saved. And he saw it as a valuable exchange worth every bit of his imprisonment if people got saved. And that was his heart. So his persecution was a blessing to the Gentile. Verse 2 says, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. So why was Paul saying it was a blessing? Because God had given him the grace to do it. So the way he could, only way he could glorify God is completing the work that God gave him. And for Paul, that work was reaching the Gentiles. If Peter had tried to do what Paul was doing with the Gentiles, yes, we know in Acts 10 that he reached out with Cornelius and everything, but his main focus was the Jews because that's where God gave him the grace and that's what he could do in his life that would bring glory to God. Well, Paul could bring glory to God because he was giving this special responsibility of extending the grace of God to Gentiles. In other words, preaching the gospel to them so they could hear with ears of faith and connect to the grace of God. Um, so Paul was called to preach to them and... It said in verse 3, as I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed this mysterious plan to me. Again, the mysterious plan isn't something like spooky and, and out there. It's just basically something that was behind a curtain and it opens up. You know, if you ever watch the old show, Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall, and you'd have like these great prizes or you get zonked. Um, well, you, you pick uh, what's under the box or what's behind the curtain, you know. And you're hoping that when you pull the curtain back, something good's there and not just like a goat cheese or something. Well, when Paul pulls this curtain back, it's the best thing you could ever possibly imagine being revealed. That's what it was, but it's no longer a mystery. It is a, a, it's the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what was revealed to the Gentiles and to the Jews alike, quite honestly, um, the Gentiles are co-heirs and members of the same body, partners in the promise of Christ, of uh, you know, Jesus' gospel. The good news that Jesus died on the cross brought Jews and Gentiles into a new group together. And this was great news for them. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and put a stopping point right there and pick up right here tomorrow. Have a great day.